Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Peter Oldring. And I'm Pat Kelly. And you're listening to This Is That, the show that brings you stories you won't hear anywhere else. News. Are you people mad? This gives me great grief. Fake news. The very thought of that offends me. It's a terrible idea. Documentary. Oh, I just love the idea. Come on. Interviews. I just couldn't believe my ears. This is that. Nothing brings people together more than being at a live sporting event and playing along with the fun and games that take place on the Jumbotron. Last week, a mother by the name of Helen Dabney Coyle took her son to a professional hockey game and says that she was shocked when the kiss cam appeared midway through the game. She has started an online petition to regulate and censor the content that appears on Arena Jumbotrons, and she joins us now to tell us a little bit more about why. Hello, Miss Dabney Coyle. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, well, what an absolute pleasure. I love the CBC, and thank you. So, first off, uh, tell us, what do you have against the Kiss Cam? Right. Well, thank you for that question. Uh, you know, I, I think that I'm not alone when I say that it's simply inappropriate. Sports is about family fun, uh, a wholesome day out. Uh, going to see our boys on the ice. Uh, when people go to a sporting event, they're there to see the sports. They're not there to see people engaged in almost pornographic behavior. Um, and, and so in my mind, it just doesn't have a place. Okay. I, I guess for those listeners uh, who are um, unfamiliar with the Kiss Cam, we should explain it's a, it's a moment when there's a break in the play and the camera finds unsuspecting people on the uh, in the crowd and, and encourages them to kiss in, uh, on the screen. Um, well, and, and, and if only it were a moment. But I have to tell you, at the Senators game that I was at, uh, this moment lasted much longer than anyone would have wanted. Let's talk about that moment then. Um, what did you see? It, it started out with a certain innocence. You know, the kissing camera landed on a, an elderly couple and there was a peck on the cheek. Fine. But then the camera landed in the upper section and on these two younger people. I'm going to say, I don't know, late 20s, but they looked older than that even. When the kiss cam found them, they began open mouth French kissing. And they just, and they were, and it just continued. And I'm, I, in my opinion, they were professionals. You couldn't tell whose tongue was whose. Okay. And the fans were going ballistic. And, and, you know, if it was only me seeing it, I think that would be one thing. I think I could have handled it. But I have to remind the listeners that I was there with my 16-year-old son. Well, you, you, and, you and seem I just to... Thought, I, thought, I thought to myself, Helen, you've got to brace yourself. And you've got to be strong for your son. Okay, so let's talk about your son. Obviously, you took offense to this. What was his reaction to this? I mean, his eyes were wide like saucers. And I, and, I, and I have to remind you, he's 16. So he's 16, yes. 
And I said to, I said, Kevin, Kevin, I want you to finish your Mountain Dew, and then we're going to slowly, carefully get up, and we're going to leave. And, and if your listeners could have been a fly on the wall inside our, uh, the Yukon as I was driving home from the game to just hear the questions mm-hmm. from my son, saying, Mommy, Mommy, what, what were they doing? Were they married? Are, okay. they, are they going to have babies? Well, some listeners, some listeners might uh, argue, you know, that he's asking these questions because he's a, a 16-year-old boy who has questions for his mother. Um, this was a 16-year-old boy who was clearly libido-provoked at an Ottawa Senators game. Okay. This happened in Canada. Okay, and so, I think that should be a wake-up call for all Canadians. Okay, so if, this... it, if this is what's happening in Canada, I don't want to know what happens at a Leafs game. Okay, so this is the moment that has uh, planted the seed with you to to invoke change across the country. Tell us a little bit more about why you want to ban these kiss cams and and how you're going about that. I started an online petition. We're 54 signatures strong and growing. And ultimately, what I would like to do is present this to the federal government and say, we have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Please remove this kiss cam from our professional sports venues. Please, for our children. When the story you just heard originally aired, we received a lot of feedback. Here's what real people had to say about banning the kiss cam from professional sporting events. Banning the camera... The kiss cam is part of the game. It's part of our culture. I think kissing is beautiful. I think we need to see more people kissing. Who cares if they're married? Kiss cam for life! I really cannot understand how a 16-year-old kid in Ottawa actually says, Mommy, Mommy, are they going to be married? What? Why is her son only now wanting to know about kissing? Oh, boy, she's got some bigger problems than her 16-year-old son, I'll tell you that. (laughs) In regards to the kiss cams in sporting events, I think that they are terrible and they're disgusting. And I am totally in agreement with her in taking those out. You can't even watch the Disney Channel without seeing people kiss these days. Yeah, this has gone way too far. I agree with her 100%. Uh, let's get this straight. So uh, you're taking them to a game where there's hitting and fighting and you have an issue with people having a go on the kissing cam? Please. This is That Prioritizes Stories About People. Here is one. Well, big news coming out of Gelvington, Saskatchewan. At 8.39 a.m. Pacific Time, Canada's second set of quintuplets was born to Sophia and Martin Valeski. One, two, three, four, five. Hi, I'm Sophia Valeski. With five identical growing boys, I need a detergent with five times the strength. Bobby passes it That's to Bernie. Right. Bernie passes it to Brian. Brian drops it off for Bert. He shoots. He scores! The Pulaski Five have become the first all-brother line to score a goal in the Saskatchewan Minor Hockey League. 
Known as Canada's second most famous set of quints, the Faleski Five have been melting the hearts of Canadians for over 50 years now. Well, uh, folks, uh, our next guest, you, you'll probably recognize their faces. That's because they all have the same one. Uh, boys, uh, why don't you come on up here? Come on up here, boy. Oh, hey. Hi. Yeah, okay, now. Hey, I'm Tommy. People have waffles. Yeah. I now in their late 50s, amazingly, the Faleski Quints still live together in their family home made famous by their youth. How many are we having? 26? Yeah, four eggs. And although they have slowed down a bit over the years, the Quints remain as lively as ever. Remember how we used to harmonize? And it was... Spending time with the Faleski Five is truly infectious. Their enthusiasm for being quince makes me wish that I had been born with four identical brothers. The biggest product to flop in our history was, remember, the Faleski Jet Ski. And it was the five-seater. They tried to make one of these, and truthfully, it was a frickin' boat. There is an undeniable closeness between them all. Which is why it's strange to think that for the first time in their lives, everything they have ever known is about to change. Oh, that's Karen. Oh, Karen's here. I'm Karen Fletcher, and I am Bruce's fiance, which I guess it means in a in a couple of days here I'm going to be Karen Faleski. In Bruce's own words, he always knew it would take a very special kind of woman to separate him from his brothers. And at the moment he met Karen, he knew it was her. <laughs> One time, she she came over to the house. She thought Bernie was me, right? Oh, so did. she kisses Bernie right on the lips. And oh, the funny thing oh. is, is he took it. Have, have you felt uh, welcomed uh, by the the brothers, the other uh, the other four Faleskis? How has that been? Well, the oh, boy. Uh, well, I wouldn't say welcome per se. I mean, the Faleskis are a tight bonded family, and it is hard to come in as an outsider. And um, but they're but they're gonna they're come, gonna around. come around. No, you didn't say she was coming. Yeah, I did. So I said she's coming. No, you didn't. You, no, you did. It's only two days from Bruce and Karen's big day. Bruce has confidence that his brothers will come around to the idea of him starting a new life with Karen. She's just been riding him so hard to get that ring, and now that she has it, her claws are sunk in. I'm sorry, I I'm sorry. Although after sitting in the yard with Bernie, Bobby, Brian, and Bert, I myself am less certain. You know, it's just that we have our own dynamic here. You know, we're the five, and, and she just kind of brings an energy that just, it, it just doesn't work really. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're like it. I mean, think of a car that runs well. Why put a woman in that car? It's wedding day. And after a lovely ceremony, Karen and Bruce are officially husband and wife. Yet tension still remains in the air. As Bruce's four brothers make their way to a microphone to deliver a speech, the room falls silent with anticipation. No one is sure what the boys will say. And then this. Karen, it's clear that you make our brother happy. If Bruce loves you, then we love you too. Welcome to the Palesti family. Change can be difficult for any family, let alone a family of quints 
who have spent 60 years together side by side. But talking to the Fileski boys at the reception, it would seem they are coming around to the idea of all the things they can do now that they're four. Yeah, we'd always wanted to do a barbershop quartet, so hey. It's that easier, we can make a curling team. Finally, I don't have to golf alone. Finally, nobody has to ride in the middle seat in the back of the Corolla. For This Is That, with a non-identical older sister, I'm Peter Oldring. <laughs> Look out, world! Here comes the Faleski foursome! Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. There is absolutely nothing more heavenly than getting lost in a corn maze. But what would you do if that corn adventure turned into a corn nightmare? Well, that's exactly what happened to Janet Maynard and 67 other corn maze enthusiasts when they became trapped in a maze last Saturday for over 24 hours. She's part of a group of people looking for answers after learning that the maze wasn't equipped with an exit. She joins me on the line to tell us more about her experience. Hello, Janet. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first off, why don't you tell us a little bit about what took you to the the Polson family farm? Why why did you decide to go into a corn maze? Uh, Well, I am a corn maze enthusiast. I actually spend most summers traveling the continental U.S., um, you know, up in Canada, wherever there is a maze, I'll I'll be there. And I hadn't heard of this one before. This one just kind of popped onto my radar. And when I heard about it, I, uh, I absolutely had to take a trip down there. I mean, obviously, had I known what I was in store for, I would have, I never would have made the trip. Okay, so as it, uh, I said in the introduction, you were, you were stuck in this maze for 24 hours with 67 other people. But walk us through that evening. What was the, the evening like? Well, you know, it didn't take much time before things became very Lord of the Flies. There was one gentleman there um, who I will remain nameless uh, for his own sake, and he kind of fancied himself a bit of a leader. Um, You know, different factions started splitting off. There was a small group who decided that, you know, for body heat, they should strip nude and lie naked beside one another. You know, there was the climbers. They were trying to climb over the sides of of the maze, and a couple of them fell and actually slightly injured themselves, which was very traumatic to watch. Um, I considered myself uh, just one of the stayers, we called ourselves, where we were just going to stay in the middle and wait until help came. You know, my question was, where was the man running the maze at this point? You know, where was he when there were 68 people trapped in the middle of his his death trap? You know, that's that's really one of the questions I'd like to have answered. Well... We're going to get that answer for you now, Janet. Joining us on the line is Stan Polson, the owner and designer of The Maze, to tell us what went wrong. Hello, Mr. Polson. First of all, I I just want to extend on behalf of the entire Polson family just uh, our deepest apologies. Obviously, this is something that uh, went horribly wrong. How did this happen? How did 67 people get stuck in your corn maze? 
Well, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, we're all still scratching our head over here uh, uh, trying to figure this out as well. Um, obviously, this is a, a very large maze. This is on 20 acres of, of land, uh, and this is the first year we've done this. So, But how um, did you not know, notice 67 people missing? You know, 20 acres. We're still a functioning farm. You know, we've got 30 acres of soybean that I was uh, had to tend to even on that day. So we just assumed, well, uh, that they they went in, had some fun, and, and left. Yeah, but when your working day was done, you didn't hear these people crying for help. No, it's, we didn't hear. We didn't hear anything. And uh, I got up at 4:30 in the morning, obviously, to uh, head out and tend to some of the farm duties. That's when I saw the cars, and I said. Oh, my God. There's the cars. Where's the people? And I, I ran in the house, and I, I, I woke up my wife, and I said, Honey, honey, there's 50-odd cars parked on the perimeter road. She said, what, what are you talking about? Are there more people for the maze? I said, No, no, there's no people, just the cars. I said, I think, I think the people are still in the maze. And I... I as quick as I could, I ran out to the combine and fired it up, and I just cut a direct path straight to the heart of the maze. Uh, about 400 meters in, I got to a, a small clearing, and there, there they were. Uh, uh, just a pile of huddled-up people, shaking, some crying, holding their children, holding each other. Uh, in, in a god-awful mess of filth. You know, the, the filth that happens when 60 people have been... You know, left to their own devices for 24 hours. They were just surrounded by ears of corn. They had clearly had to pull down some of the stalks and just gnaw on the corn. It was a horrible sight and the stench. Well, it certainly sounds like you've uh, learned your lesson, Mr. Polson. Finally, do you think next year that you'll be making a maze? No, no. We're, there's not going to be any maze. We're, not, we're never doing that again, never. We're going to do something safer next year, something easy, you know, maybe a pumpkin catapult. Take care, Mr. Polson. Thank you for your time. You have got to be kidding me. I'm just so furious about this. I have never heard of anything so ridiculous. This is that. And now, a This Is That documentary. At the outflow of Lake Erie into Lake Ontario sits the mighty natural wonder Niagara Falls. of Niagara Falls. Over the years, daredevils and thrill-seekers have attempted to go over the falls in barrels, balloons, or cross them on tightropes. Some have done it for the glory, while others have done it for monetary reasons. This is a story about none of those people. Okay, that is thirty-two fifty. Sorry, I have to put the tax on. <laughs> Rather, this is a tale about a man with an entirely different view of the falls. My name is Dwayne Nolan, and I've grown up in the Niagara region. My wife and I now run a, a souvenir shop in the Niagara on the lake areas. Good. Welcome to Memories and Things. Feel free to look around. While most are consumed uh, with visions of going over. I just thought, oh boy, yeah, people going over the falls, or there you go, or people crossing the falls, but... Dwayne Nolan would prefer... I'd never really heard of anyone going up the falls. 
to think about going up. <laughs> I thought that's strange. No one's gone up the falls. Now, how would you go up the falls? Up Niagara Falls. In preparation for the big climb, Dwayne and his brother-in-law Ronnie have chosen to relocate for a few weeks to Fenland Falls, Ontario. I really can't hear you. You should have had this conversation down here. Are you asking what? It's there that they can start Dwayne's training on a much more manageable size of falls. Get the yellow one, the one thousand pound. What? What? Yes. Hello. Ronnie basically spools out some rope uh, from upstream over the falls, and uh, then when it makes it down to me, uh, I grab a hold of that rope as best I can, and I just I get in the water and start pulling myself, arm over arm, up towards the waterfall, and then right up above it. What? Don't talk to me. I'm in the water now. Ronnie and Dwayne explained to me that over the next few months, they will move around Ontario, slowly increasing the height and volume of the falls in which Dwayne will climb. We wanted to start small. We wanted to start on a manageable size of falls to just get the sense of what it's like to, to use that upper arm strength to climb up the falls. No one's ever done this before. And so there's no book you can buy at the library that tells you how to climb up Niagara Falls. So... Listening to them, I can't help but think, is what they're doing legal? Thanks for taking your time to talk to me today. It's my pleasure. It's not a problem. From the Niagara Falls Park Commission, Jessica Perret. Has anybody ever attempted to climb up and over the falls, do you know, since you've been working there? Or have you heard? <laughs> uh, no, no, I've never heard of anyone trying to do that. That's, uh, it's impossible. But if somebody did, if somebody was attempting to do it, is, it, is that illegal? Do you know? Technically, no, not illegal, but very, very dangerous. Hi. Hi, Pat. A few weeks before the big climb, I get a call from Dwayne late one night at work. After a long day of training, he is noticeably disappointed, and for the first time I sense that he's having doubts about going up Niagara Falls. Well, do you think you're still going to go through with it? I don't know. He is surprisingly candid, and I no longer find myself just being a journalist. Rather, I now recognize that Dwayne and I have become friends. I mean, could you do your story if we didn't? Is there a way to... I mean, if we didn't actually make it... Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I don't want you. I don't want to mess you up, but I'm just... And as his friend, all I can do is listen and offer my advice. Yeah, well, I want to, I want you to know this, that yeah. I don't want you to do it if you're not feeling confident because you think you need to be in the story. <sighs> oh, my gosh. Sometimes I just don't know what I'm doing, you know? Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh, you wouldn't even believe the number of people that think I'm crazy. <sighs> Well, you don't have to Just do as it, I feel that Dwayne is about to call the whole thing right, off, Ronnie enters the room and we quickly yep. have to say goodnight. To I tell him that I will see him in a few weeks in Niagara Falls. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. When I arrive at Niagara Falls, I'm nervous with anticipation. I don't even want you talking about that because we already said we're not going to infiltrate this with negativity. I meet Ronnie and Dwayne at a discreet location near the falls and they prep me on how the climb is going to go. You can see down there is a boat launch. 
I'm going to get into a 17-foot uh, aluminum Grumman boat. It's got a 25-horsepower motor on the back into the spray circle at the base of the Horseshoe Falls. That's where I'll be looking for the boy, looking for the rope. Grab hold of this rope, and I just start arm over arm. Climbing up, 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 all the way to the top, up. As Dwayne pulls away in his tin boat en route to the base of the falls, I marvel at the notion that I may have a front row seat in the making of history. Dwayne begins to crawl closer and closer to the falls just past the Maid of the Mist, and Ronnie has successfully dropped the rope. I can see it dangling, waiting for Dwayne to grab. And just then, a boat comes out of nowhere and blocks Dwayne from getting any closer, and I realize he's made a critical error. Dwayne and Ronnie never applied for a permit to have a boat that close to Niagara Falls. So how are you guys feeling? I couldn't believe it when I saw her. I feel terribly disappointed. I mean, disappointment doesn't even begin to say how I feel. I, I, I'll tell you this much. So long as there's a falls, so long as there's a Niagara Falls, there's going to be somebody that's going to be the first person to go up it. And they're going to be hard-pressed to beat me because I'm not going to give up. Yeah, I got a fine. Yeah, they caught us that didn't get a chance to climb that rope. But there's a lot of different ways you can get to the bottom of a falls. A lot of different ways. After spending time with Dwayne and Ronnie, I'm reminded that hopes and dreams come and go and you can't always count on things going your way. But at the end of the day, you can be rest assured knowing that one thing will always be there. And that's Niagara Falls. boy. Let me In get fact, you a beer. Oh, I'd love a beer. Actually, do you know what I was thinking, too? You could parachute to the bottom of a falls. It's a parachute. You just come out of a plane, and then the rope's already there. And whether you decide to go over them in a barrel or walk across them on a rope or simply just look at them while having a hot dog, her mighty waters will always be a wonder of this world. That's how you do it. You go over the falls, and then you climb up, and then you've done it twice. <laughs> For This Is That, I'm Pat Kelly. Well, that was another episode of This Is That from CBC Podcasts. This show was created and performed by me, Pat Kelly. And by me, Peter Oldring. With additional voices supplied by Lauren Ash, Mary Pat Farrell, Caitlin Howden, and Scott Vroman. Production support by Kelly and Kelly. Head of production, Lauren Berkovich. Senior producer and sound designer, Chris Kelly. Additional editing by Max Collins. Special thanks to Kurt Smeaton, Mike Belazzo, and Tom Anico. Roshni Nair is our digital coordinating producer. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Nurani is the director. Thanks for listening, and remember, if it's not this, then it must be that. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.